Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with Assistant Professor of African, African American, and Diaspora Studies, Petal Samuel. In our conversation, Professor Samuel discusses her current project on the literature of noise policing in post-colonial 20th century Caribbean nations. All right, so Petal, thanks so much for speaking with me today on the podcast. And so to start off for our audience, can you talk a little bit about what you do here at, at UNC on campus as a professor? Sure, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I am an assistant professor of African, African-American and diaspora studies at UNC here. Um, and I teach classes on Caribbean literature, uh, Black feminist thought, um, Black women's writing. Um, and my research is sort of broadly interested in, um, I'd say, Caribbean anti-colonial uh, thought, politics, aesthetics, with a sort of um, specific emphasis on the contributions of uh, Afro-Caribbean women writers and artists to the anti-colonial tradition. Yeah, so one thing I've noticed about departments like yours, and there's other departments that are like this too, like Women's and Gender Studies, or even Asian Middle Eastern Studies Department, within a department you have people that study various things, very inherently interdisciplinary. So I guess a question I'll ask you is what drew you to literary studies as opposed to, you know, there's others in your department that do history or political science or um, even um, anthropology, so. In undergrad, I was a uh, Africana studies and English double major. Okay. And I was always drawn to literature in particular for its capacity to capture um, lived and felt realities mm -hmm. as uh, as opposed to um, the kind of formal documentation of, of phenomena, which are also very important. But I think there was something that I, I felt um, I, that I could connect to on a deeper level when it came to literature and things that literature can can capture the the sort of subtleties, the inform the informal kind of ways that um, these kind of structures in our world shape our lives and the kind of muddiness and messiness of it all. So I was drawn to literature because for the ways that it was able to capture things that um, it didn't feel like there was room for in some other areas of study. I studied literature too, so I'm just always curious. Oh, yeah, that's more of a. <laughs> I'm very excited to be talking to another literary scholar. Yeah, yeah, we can nerd out on certain things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you don't mind, could you talk a little bit about your current book project and and specifically um, dive in a little bit on what you're working on right now? Sure. Yeah. So my book project is examining the regulation and sort of suppression of noise as a, a technique of 
uh, colonial governance mm -hmm. in the um, in the Anglophone Caribbean um, in the late colonial period and in the post-independence periods. Um, so on the one hand, I'm interested in things like noise abatement laws, um, anti-noise public discourses and newspapers and so on, the kind of framing of noise as um, as an issue of colonial governance, an mm. urgent issue of colonial governance. Um, and then on the other hand, thinking about how uh, Afro-Caribbean women writers expose or call attention to the actual political stakes of, of noise control. So there's a way that these official discourses about noise traffic is somewhat uh, pedestrian and apolitical. They're really uh, objective matters of um, sensory disturbance. Um, but you know, in fact, um, they become these mechanisms that uh, facilitate um, uh, all these forms of anti-Black and classist and sexist and, and homophobic violence and um, justify the, the presence of, or the hyper-policing of these communities in, in certain mm -hmm. ways. And so what writers uniquely do um, is sort of expose how these laws and these public discourses and I do, just general ideas about uh, sonic or acoustic respectability oh, yeah. uh, facilitate um, uh, black kind of processes of, of black dispossession and um, hyper policing and so on. You know, it's funny you say that because recently um, in, in our neighborhood, I've been working on this committee to like review the HOA um, covenants. Mm -hmm. And there was one in there that kind of and I think if I hadn't been thinking about stuff like your work or, or other things I've been reading um, uh, over the past few years, there was this one thing about, it just said, uh, it was some kind of, I don't know how to want to say it. It was, it was just some line. It was almost just like two lines about, you know, not doing anything that would be considered obnoxious or annoying. And I'm like, <laughs> how could you put that in an official document? And it's been there for like over 20 years. And I'm like, this thing has got to go because like, that could be anything. And yeah. then in, in like a space like this in Chapel Hill, that could be definitely used for like, you know, suppression of any like minority group that's in this neighborhood or anything like that. And, and right, it just was right. wild to me. Yeah, and that's that's part of what I find with the, the sort of study of um, anti-noise rhetoric and legislation is that it is deliberately uh, obfuscatory. You're not quite sure mm -hmm. at what point something becomes noise. And even if you know, even if there are kind of stipulated decibel measures or something, yeah, yeah. Um, people aren't walking around with sound meters, just kind of measuring <laughs> the decibel, you know what I mean? Right. And so it really um, relies on the idea of, of nuisance, which yeah. gets treated as though um, it's apolitical and as though we all know at what point something becomes a nuisance. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So can you give some like a specific example of like a writer, uh, what kind of how that manifests in, in a particular writer? Yeah, sure. And one right before that, it, so is this more like um, the time period? Does it cover a specific time period? Is like twentieth century work, or I am focusing on the late colonial period. That so the sort of uh, 
as early as the 1930s through to um, the contemporary moment. Okay. So mid to late 20th century, early 21st century. In terms of how this manifests or appears in the work of a particular writer, um, I'm currently um, kind of working on my chapter on Michelle Cliff's um, work. Michelle Cliff is an, a queer Afro-Jamaican woman writer who writes these these two novels, A Bang and No Telephone to Heaven, which is the sequel to A Bang. And they're tracing the life of this young Afro-Jamaican girl growing up in 1950s Jamaica and in the sort of late colonial period on the eve of independence. So that's what A Bang covers. No Telephone to Heaven covers her migration to the U.S., moving to London, and then coming back to Jamaica in the in the 80s in, after independence and still kind of uh, observing the endurance of colonial ideologies and forms in the aftermath of independence. Yeah. And one of the things that I, uh, that drew me to a bang is her uh, attention to sonic policing as it takes place in these, uh, via these informal um, agents of, of, of sonic surveillance. So she, she writes a lot about the colonial school and she writes about, um, for instance, having to sing um, colonial anthems in school, like Rule Britannia, yeah, and how you know in her girls' school they're having to sing that collectively and loudly, and the notes are you know and in harmony, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, uh, telling uh, telling stories about how there's a scene in a bang that I think about in the chapter where one of her classmates who is a dark-skinned working class Jamaican girl in her colonial school has an epileptic seizure in the middle of the collective singing of a hymn and the nuns uh, who are leading the hymn um, encourage the girls to kind of keep singing and sing louder to cover the sound of her body kind of thrashing against the ground and then she's kind of promptly uh, expelled from the school after after that. And so uh, she captures uh, some of the ways that um, sonic discipline was a very important part of her upbringing as an Afro-Jamaican girl. And then how sonic discipline fell unevenly on particular people based on class, based on color, right? Because Claire, the protagonist, is a, a light-skinned kind of Creole from a Creole elite family in in Jamaica, you know. And so she's experiencing these these mechanisms of of kind of surveillance and discipline, um, but really quite differently from her classmate, who is expected to really be much more contained and controlled and and disciplined. So, um, so yeah, so that's one example of how sound, uh, sonic discipline, sonic respectability comes up. Yeah. You know, for some reason, uh, when I was thinking about this, I was always thinking about it being like the, the idea of like sonic policing to be a silencing thing, but this is an interesting example because it's the opposite of that, but it's controlling what comes out, you know, I guess trying to imprint a certain ideology 
through yes. that that chorus or that that choral singing or whatever this actually um while i was working on this chapter i um came across some writing about a recent public skirmish around the the singing of uh rule britannia in and i think it was for the 2020 um proms this classical music concert in the uk and the last day of the concert is reserved for kind of patriotic anthems and other kinds of things. Yeah. And Rule Britannia was one of the one of the uh, pieces that uh, they wanted to to play, and BBC opted to not have the to not air the lyrics and not have a collective singing of the lyrics because the lyrics say rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. And so oh, wow. BBC said, yeah, yeah. you know, let's not sing the lyrics. And then it became a whole, I, you know, there was a whole public contention around whether or not this is um, censorship of Britain's, you know, um, you know, uh, um, cultural forms and et cetera, et cetera. So these issues are continuing to kind of shape how we think about sound and uh, the meaning of sound and the legacies of colonialism today. Yeah. Do you, do you find any challenges writing about sound and uh, noise in a written form? <laughs> what, what challenges do you find there? What, what helps me to do this is that what is being called noise is already so um, subjective it's okay. a discursive construction mm, to begin yeah. with. And okay. so when I am looking at going through colonial archives and looking at these newspaper clippings and so on, the tell really is um, the, the metaphors and the sort of clustering of concerns around the issue of noise, the kinds of instruments that get routinely cited as the sources of noise, drums, horns, you know, the kinds of social spaces. So really being, having a, a literary analysis, a close reading background is, is essential for, for this project because it, for other kinds of sound studies projects, you know, the kind of nature and the quality of the sound and its timbre, its volume, et cetera, those kinds of things. For other kinds of sound studies projects, it's essential that you kind of think with and through the, the sound in that kind of way. Right. For, for this project, I'm really interested in calling noise as a discursive construction into focus really so that I can d dismiss it or displace it as, as the actual name for the thing that they're naming or prob problematizing. Right, yeah, yeah. I guess it's more on the discourse of the noise rather than the noise itself. Right, So right. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. I've got one more question, if that's okay. And something we ask almost all our guests, what's a book that changed your life? There's so many. My, my life is constantly being changed by books. Can I talk about more than one? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So I'll there there are two that come to mind immediately. 
One is a dissertation by a, a sort of legendary sound studies dissertation by a mm -hmm. scholar named Mendy, Mendy Obadike um, called Low Fidelity, Stereotyped Blackness in the Field of Sound. And it is just such a, an essential and, and beautiful foundational Black sound studies text that one talks about how essential uh, an analysis of textual narrative is for understanding the meaning that sound carries. So one of the things that she talks about is the fact that sound is um, the meaning of sound is not necessarily is not always carried within the sound itself. It's oh, okay. um, yeah. kind of um, attached to these other discourses and other kind of contextual um, things. Um, and then she kind of talks about the concept of acousmatic blackness, which is how blackness gets invoked in in the visual absence of black people. So if we think about the the soundtrack for a film, the way that what what it means if hip hop is playing in mm -hmm. the background. Right, right. Um, even if no black people are on screen, they're trying to invoke a certain kind of uh, environment of criminality or under uh, underworldness or or whatever it is. And so so that has been really important. And I've I'm also currently feeling very inspired by the work of people like Shaniqua Roach and uh, Aliyah Abdurrahman and Sam Pinto and Kevin Kweshi on the concept of Black privacy. And Kweshi's book, The Sovereignty of Quiet, really changed a lot for me in terms of the way that I think about the study of Blackness because he pushes against this idea that Blackness exists for its capacity to, um, for its political meaningfulness to others and is, is asking us to think about Black interiority and what, what that means and what that looks like in a context in which Black people and Blackness is expected to be public and represent some sort of set of public lessons for the world. Um, even as uh, traditions of Black resistance are, are critical and, and really important, how can we kind of think about Black people as full human beings who have interiority as well and aren't just representing some, some set of things to the world. Um, so yeah, so that's what, those are two sets of things that have really moved me and inspired me. That's great. Well, Petal, thank you for that. And thanks so much for, again, for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on the website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.